0: Good morning and welcome to Current Radio. It's Wednesday, January 10th. Today we're exploring the launch of a private US moon mission and its potential to open a new era for science and a unique fusion of Western science with traditional knowledge. Plus, we'll delve into how boosting microbiome science worldwide could save millions of children's lives and discover nature's hidden treasures as new algae species rewrite scientists' understanding of reef systems. This coverage and more up next. Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. The race to the moon is back on, but this time it's not just nations vying for lunar dominance, but private companies as well. The Peregrine Lunar Lander, built by Astrobotic, launched from Florida recently, aiming to be the first U.S. mission to land on the moon since 1972. Charlotte, what does this mean for the future of lunar exploration?
1: Well, Diego, this mission is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services CLPS, program. NASA is essentially outsourcing future robotic lunar missions to private companies. If successful, it could open up a new era of lunar research. The Peregrine Lander is carrying five scientific instruments built by NASA, and if it lands successfully, it will start conducting science with a variety of instruments from NASA and others.
0: So it's not just about getting to the moon, but what we can learn once we're there. Can you tell us more about the scientific instruments on board?
1: Absolutely, Diego. The five NASA instruments on board include three that will hunt for volatile elements, such as water, One is a mass spectrometer that will measure the composition of volatile substances in the soil and atmosphere, including in the lunar dust kicked up by Peregrine during landing and by the roaming mini-rovers. These instruments aim to analyze how volatile molecules move around on the lunar surface, including how they are transported to the Moon's poles, where they are frozen in dark craters. This could be crucial for future lunar missions, as the water in these craters could serve as a potential resource for astronauts.
0: Interesting, but it's not just scientific payloads on board, right?
1: That's correct. Peregrine also carries non-scientific payloads, including art and educational projects, for paying customers. The most controversial are cremated human remains destined for the lunar surface, provided by two companies that aim to memorialize people in space. This has sparked a complaint from the Navajo nation who see it as desecration of a celestial object that is sacred to their people. NASA has a meeting planned with Navajo leaders to discuss next steps.
0: It's clear that as we push the boundaries of space exploration, we're also pushing the boundaries of ethical considerations. Thanks for your insights, Charlotte. Now, let's shift gears to discuss a unique approach to land management and invasive species where a PhD researcher at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver is combining Western science with indigenous knowledge to tackle these issues. Charlotte, can you tell us more about this? Absolutely, Diego.
1: This researcher, Anlaka Pamukk's woman of mixed ancestry, found herself questioning traditional methods of managing invasive plant species. She realized that simply eradicating these species without a holistic land management plan was not effective, so she decided to incorporate her indigenous worldview into her scientific approach.
0: That's interesting. How does she go about doing that?
1: Well, instead of asking, how do we get rid of this invasive plant, the question becomes, what do culturally important local plant species need to flourish? When she goes out into the field, she involves a diverse team of experts, archaeologists, elders, soil scientists, plant scientists, and historical ecologists to understand how the land was managed in the past and how it should be managed in the future.
0: Can you give us an example of how this approach has been applied?
1: Sure, Diego. A prime example is the Cowichan Estuary Restoration Project on Vancouver Island. After two kilometers of dikes were removed to reconnect the estuary to wetlands, the researcher and the Cowichan tribe's land staff noticed that camas, a bright purple flower and an important fiber source for coastal indigenous peoples, bloomed throughout the estuary. This led them to realize that the estuary had been an important food source for the local indigenous peoples, prompting a rethink of the restoration project. Now, community-based researchers, elders, and knowledge keepers are informing the next steps— combining remote sensing technologies with oral histories to shape the lands according to community values and needs.
0: It's fascinating to see how combining different perspectives can lead to more effective and sustainable solutions. Thanks for sharing, Charlotte. Now, let's delve into the human microbiome, the collection of bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live on and in our bodies, which has been a subject of intense study in recent years, but it seems there's a geographical bias in the data. Charlotte, could you elaborate on this?
1: Absolutely, Diego. While less than 15% of the global population lives in Europe or North America, more than 70% of published human microbiome data comes from these regions. This is a significant gap in our understanding, especially considering that the gut microbiota of individuals can differ significantly depending on where they live. This bias could potentially limit the development of effective microbiome-based therapeutics for people living in less wealthy regions.
0: So, what's being done to address this imbalance?
1: There's a growing recognition of the need for more diverse microbiome data. Last year, a workshop was held at the Wellcome Genome Campus in the UK, funded by Wellcome Connecting Science and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This event brought together leaders in early-life microbiome research and early-career researchers from 23 countries. The consensus was that microbiome science has enormous potential to improve global health, especially for children. But achieving this will require data collection from diverse populations worldwide, training of researchers in low- and middle-income countries, and the development of local infrastructure to analyze specimens and conduct clinical studies.
0: It's clear that the microbiome plays a crucial role in human health. Can you tell us more about how it influences disease and overall health?
1: Certainly. The human gut microbiota develops in a specific way, with the arrival of one species influencing which species colonizes the gut next. This ecological succession begins at birth and continues throughout our lives. Disruptions to this process can lead to health issues like malnutrition and infectious diseases. For example, undernutrition is associated with nearly half of all deaths of children under five. And there's emerging evidence that the gut microbiome could offer leads for therapeutics for this and other public health threats in low and middle income countries.
0: What are some of the challenges in accelerating microbiome research in these countries?
1: There are numerous barriers. Researchers often lack the necessary infrastructure, such as transport services, freezers, and reliable power supplies. There's also a shortage of computational resources to analyze and store vast data sets. Additionally, many of these countries lack the facilities needed to perform studies in notobiotic mice, which are crucial for microbiome research. And perhaps most importantly, there's a lack of training and expertise to develop a multidisciplinary workforce that can conduct these studies.
0: So what's the way forward? How can we overcome these barriers?
1: Three key steps could help. First, establishing regional centers of excellence dedicated to microbiome research could enable long-term sampling and mapping of microbial diversity. Second, developing microbial culture collections, particularly from children, could provide valuable resources for research. And third, fostering robust, long-term collaborations between better-resourced labs in Europe and North America and researchers in low- and middle-income countries will be crucial. This could be facilitated through exchange programs and targeted research grants.
0: It's clear that a more inclusive approach to microbiome research could have far-reaching benefits for global health. Thanks for your insights, Charlotte. In a shift to marine biology, a recent discovery in the Great Barrier Reef and unique reef systems of the Coral Sea and Lord Howe Island has led to a greater understanding of how these World Heritage-listed landmarks are protected. Charlotte, can you tell us more about this discovery and its implications?
1: Absolutely, Diego. An international team of marine scientists, led by Griffith University, has identified and officially named four species of algae new to science. This challenges previous assumptions within the Porolithon genus. These algae play a crucial role in cementing the delicate frameworks of coral reefs and sustaining marine biodiversity in tropical and subtropical waters.
0: So, these newly discovered species are not just new additions to our biodiversity, but they also play a significant role in the ecosystem. What are these species and what makes them unique?
1: The four newly discovered species are Porolithon lobulatum, Porolithon parvulum, Porolithon panaculum, and Porolithon howensis. Each of these species can be distinguished based on a combination of features, including their thallus growth form, margin shape, and internal anatomy. For instance, P. lobulitum has branched forms and lobed free margins, while P. panaculum exhibits a mountain-like columnar morphology. This discovery emphasizes the need for further exploration and conservation of the Great Barrier Reef and its unique inhabitants.
0: That's fascinating. And I understand there's an urgency in protecting these newly discovered species.
1: Yes, Diego, these pyrrolithon species are very sensitive to the impacts of ocean acidification and warming. It's urgent that we recognize and document this diversity, given the potential risks of losing this diversity to climate change. As Associate Professor Diaz Pulido, the research team leader said, we can't protect what we don't know. These findings are crucial for preserving and protecting the delicate balance of this unique and fragile ecosystem.
0: A sobering reminder, of the importance of scientific discovery in the face of climate change. Thank you for your insights, Charlotte. All right, that wraps up our stories for today, and we look forward to bringing you more updates tomorrow here on Current Radio.